This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for April 17th, 2017. In this podcast, I have an interview with Jennifer Briney. She's been the host of the excellent podcast that's been keeping tabs on what politicians get up to in Washington for the past five years. I hope you enjoy the interview. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, What matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. On a Skype line now, I have Jennifer Briney. She's the presenter of a podcast called Congressional Dish. Um, What made you start the podcast, Jennifer? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me today. And um, Congressional Dish really started, it was kind of a long progression, but Um, as an American, I didn't really understand our role in the world, but then I lived in Germany for about six months in the, in the start of 2003. Mm -hmm. Um, I was studying abroad. I was just a dumb American kid. Like I wasn't thinking very seriously, but I ran into the protests that were protesting the Iraq war just by happenstance because they were everywhere. And so that was really eye opening for me to realize that we couldn't do whatever we wanted in the world and that people were actually angry at us. And then the more shocking thing is when I came home from studying abroad and I saw my own countrymen not paying any attention to the war. And I think the reason that that was is you turn on the TV and it was presented like a reality TV show. It wasn't a serious discussion about matters of war. It was just, you know, look at the cool new planes they're using. And it was really disgusting. And so when I came home, I was just kind of desperate to find real information because I couldn't find it on the television here in the way that I could overseas. And so um, years later, I was watching C-SPAN and I saw a congressman slip an amendment into an energy and water funding bill that protected his secret campaign contributions. And what was even worse is he bragged about it. And so I checked the the record to make sure I actually saw what I saw and I did. And the more shocking part is when I turned on the television that night and went on the Internet to look for articles or blogs or anything about it, there was nothing, nothing, not one. And so that's when I realized that there was things going on in Congress that were not being covered by anyone anywhere. And that was a hole that I had the skills to fill. Give me give me a couple of the top stories that you think have been most impactful on on your podcast. Well, I mean, I started this in late 2012, and I really didn't know if I was on to anything until April of 2013, when um, Congress, in a bipartisan faction, and these two parties gutted what is known as the Stock Act. Now, the Stock Act was called um, Stop Trading on Insider Knowledge Act, mm-hmm. and it was supposed to – I mean, it didn't actually stop that behavior by members of Congress – But it was supposed to create a website where people like you and I can go and look at the financials so we could look at a congressman, see which bills they're writing, and then look and see their stock trades to see how they're using their knowledge to gamble on Wall Street. And so in the spring of 2013, very quietly, the Democrats in the Senate and the Republicans in the House, they passed a bill that made that website disappear And they did it in a way where they got the unanimous consent of an empty room. So in the Senate, for instance, Chris Coons, who's a senator from, I think, uh, somewhere on the East Coast, I can't remember, 
Mm-hmm. But he's a Democrat. And he got up and he said, you know, we want to pass this bill. Do we have your consent? And there was nobody there. And so because no one was there to object, the bill passed and there was no recorded vote. So I can't even tell you how your senators voted. And then the Republicans did the same thing in the House the next day. That was a Friday. And then Monday morning, President Barack Obama, Democrats signed it into law. So this was both political parties doing something that was horrifying. And then um, as far as the media is concerned, and I can kind of forgive them for this one, but they didn't cover it because right after it was signed into law, the Boston Marathon bombing happened. And then this just never hit the news. And so that was one way that I said, oh, my God, like my podcast is actually doing something because this is a big story that's not being covered by anyone anywhere. Do you think that you made any impact? Did that Stoke Act, uh, did the change to that law go through? Oh, yeah, it definitely went through. I mean, before I was living in Boston at the time. And so I was, I mean, I had terrorists literally running around my neighborhood. And so I was distracted, too. I didn't realize that it happened until um, on the lockdown day is what we called it. It was the Friday that we were trying to catch the the younger brother, um, Jahar. Mm-hmm. Uh, during that day, we couldn't leave the house. This, so this I was, was of the two brothers who carried out the bombing on the marathon. Yes. And so the older brother, he um, he was killed on Thursday night. And then on Friday, we were on lockdown. We weren't allowed to leave the house for like nine hours. And so that's when I discovered that it happened because I was working while while watching the TV. And that's when I went, oh, my God, this actually happened. And I did the the next episode. But by the time I even found out about it, it was it was over. And so um, that was a learning experience for me, too. I mean, there was no way I was going to stop it at the time. I think I had maybe like 30 downloads per episode. Mm -hmm. So I just didn't have the audience. But um, but yeah, it was just the fact that it happened. Um, I'd say that the impact that it had is it showed me that I was doing something that could have an impact in the future. It just showed me that I wasn't wrong in my assumption that these shady things happen in Congress and that they are ignored. Was that a once off or do you think that that sort of thing is happening often? Well, that or am I asking a naive it, question? No, it's not naive at all. It's just I've seen it happen with different methods. So something that I see happen all the time is that we, um, you know, our government is supposed to be funded every year by by September 30th with 12 different appropriations bills, appropriations bills or funding bills. But that never I've never seen that happen in my four years of doing Congressional Dish. What I see instead is that they push off the deadline to right in between Thanksgiving and Christmas and they pass a massive funding bill that funds the entire government all at once. And attached to that are provisions that if they were to stand alone would never be signed into law. And I, I call them dingleberries because I'm very classy. But, yeah, they stick these provisions onto these government funding laws and they force the president to sign them. And so, for example, some things that I've seen passed in that manner was um, uh, so the Dodd-Frank financial reform bill was supposed to separate uh, the investment actions of the big banks from our deposits in the big banks. And so um, that separation was eliminated as a dingleberry on a funding bill. I also saw a treaty with the Gulf of Mexico. This was after the Deepwater Horizon spill. We signed a treaty with the Gulf of Mexico to dil- drill even deeper in the Gulf of Mexico than where that oil rig was. And that was signed as an attachment onto a government funding law. It seems like a pretty big decision to me to be signed into law in that manner. I've seen all kinds of environmental um, uh, provisions attached in that way. So that is the the more common method of shady things becoming law. But um, but yeah, the unanimous consent of an empty room, that is an, a strategy that I'm now aware of and I am, I'm keeping watch for it in a way that I wouldn't have if I hadn't seen it. Does this all make you terribly cynical, um, make you think that really nothing can be done to improve anything? No, not at all. 
Um, one of the reasons I wanted to focus not only on Congress, but on the House of Representatives in particular, is that we're allowed to fire every single one of them every two years. And a lot of us, we keep voting in our congressmen because, A, we're not aware of what they're doing. Um, but, B, there's not a massive focus on our Congress in the way there is on the executive branch. And so I, what I'm seeing now for this next midterm election after – because we're speaking right now after the election of Donald Trump – the next midterm election is in 2018, and there's already a massive mobilization happening to replace the people in Congress because we're realizing that Congress is our only tool to um, to fight an executive branch run amok. And I'm not saying that the Trump administration has done that just yet, but the put potential is there. And so people are looking at Congress now in a way that I've never seen in my entire lifetime. So I'm hopeful in that regard. And then also when I look at the individuals who are in Congress – I'm 34 years old, and many of them have been there my entire life. So it's not the system that's broken. It's that we keep hiring back the same exact people and expecting different results. D so doesn't honestly, that mean that the system is broken? That the, you know, if the people are part of the system, they might be the component that's, that's failing? Well, we are failing as voters because, like I said, we only are focusing on a, on a massive level on the executive branch. We only pay attention to presidential elections. On midterm elections, the voting turnout, it just it falls out. We have very few people that vote in our midterm elections. And in fact, we have very few people that are voting in our presidential elections. Half of the people who are eligible to vote in 2016 for the presidency didn't even vote. And so, yes, we have a problem, but that is a problem that is changed with ideas. It's not systemic. It's our fault for not voting, which is something that we can fix anytime we choose to. And I think that we're about to see a lot of people vote for a midterm for their first time in 2018. So I'm very hopeful. And um, and there are some things that are happening. You know, the, the redistricting process that we have here is it's political. And so you're seeing whatever party controls the state government during the census is able to kind of draw a line around the people they want voting for them. So that's a process that we need to fix. So we do have systemic or problems. We also have problems with uh, political parties finding ways to kick people off of voter rolls. This is something the Republican Party is doing in particular. So we do have problems. But all of those things are calculations that are done based on current voting statistics. Hmm. But we have a whole new generation of people that are going to rise up. I'm convinced of it. And um, we can blow all of those calculations out of the water just by showing up to vote. So, no, I'm not cynical at all, and I do think that we can fix this. Um, if it's possible, why hasn't it happened yet? Because everyone was asleep. I mean, during the George W. Bush administration, that was my awakening. But by and large in the United States, I don't think that that was um, – I don't think it was a huge catalyst, especially when followed by Barack Obama. What I witnessed happen – was that in 2008, there were a lot of people that got active and they wanted to elect a better president. They elected Barack Obama and then they stopped paying attention for eight years. They thought that they were just safe. Now with the election of Donald Trump, it doesn't matter which political party you're in. You know this is weird. This is different. He's a reality TV show star. Um, he lies with no <laughs> – like no conscious about it whatsoever. I mean he did it um, – yeah, he's just he's just a liar. And so I think that there's a lot of people now that are paying attention in a way that we've never seen before and looking at Congress as their tool to fix it. So it's a, it's an awakening process. There's always like I remember my awakening moment and I, I've gotten a lot of emails lately from people that have had their awakening moment. A lot of them saying that it was the election of Donald Trump where they're like, OK, our government's gotten out of control 
and we're supposed to be the people that are in charge of it. Where do I even start? Um, and so the more that happens, the more people will vote, the more they'll be involved, the more they'll pay attention. And people are also demanding real news in a way that I've never seen them do before. I mean, we've been able to, yes, absolutely. I mean, you can look at the fake news theme, which I've been saying for years and years and years that this stuff isn't news. When I turn on the local news and they're telling me a story about a cat, that is not news. Oh, I want to challenge you on that. I want to challenge you on that because we've had things like, um, the Denver Guardian, which was like a one page, um, website that was set up with a transparently uh, untrue story referencing non-existent people, uh, and a non-existent, uh, town. And that for sure was fake news. Um, the story that was written on it was particularly baited to appeal to Trump supporters. Millions, literally millions of them shared, shared that. And the person who created that one page website with one story on it made an enormous amount of money just from the ad revenue, just from, from people, uh, sharing that story. But I don't really think that's a problem because I think there's a certain section of people who just want those sort of ludicrous stories to be true that, you know, Hillary Clinton murdered somebody or, you know, something like this. But the people who are in any way persuadable will just laugh off a story like that. It's transparently untrue. Mm-hmm. But people who just fall on one side of the aisle or the other, which is almost everybody, they only want to hear stories that appeal to their prejudices. Now, it might be true. It's not, you know, it's true stories. It's not fake news in the sense that somebody's telling untruths, but it's giving a slant and selecting stories that appeal to their prejudices. Isn't that going on all the time? So, yes, that goes on all the time. But where I disagree with your statement is that you think almost everybody falls on the the left or right spectrum. I don't think that's true at all. And our voting statistics are proving that to not be true. Because if you look at the people that have voted for Republican presidencies, um, presidencies, we've seen that it just hovers around 25%. There's been no spike. There's been no dip. So I see that the people that are firmly on the right side, it's their team. They'll believe anything they're told. It's about 25% of us. We also had about 25% of us vote for Hillary Clinton, and those numbers went down as, you know, compared to what Barack Obama was getting. People were not buying the Hillary Clinton. Because uh, Hillary as Clinton a percentage or as an absolute number? This is a percentage of eligible voters. Sure, sure but she um, got more votes than any other presidential candidate, I think, in history. No, she didn't. Oh, no, she, she, she got a very uh, – she, she certainly got more votes than any losing presidential candidate in history. That may be true, but when you look at the number of voters that sat out of this election, it blows mm-hmm. both of those candidates away. We had a, approximately 40% of eligible voters chose not to vote. And those are the people that I think are like me, that feel like they're not being represented by either party. So um, I actually, I believe that independents vast, in fact, the, the polls actually back this up too, that independents vastly um, outnumber the people that have picked side blue or side red. And so that's where my hope lies. When I look at the people that are going to believe whatever their party tells them, I just kind of ignore them completely. And I'm looking at more the people in the middle who just don't know what to do, feel completely unrepresented. Those are the people that I want to talk to. Because but isn't, isn't it our, fair to say that Donald Trump had an achievement that he flipped sure. an awful lot of voters who were died 
in the wall uh, blue Democrats, uh, for example, in you know Michigan and uh, um, Wisconsin, those type of states, and he managed to flip them into voting for uh, Republican. He probably actually managed to flip some Republicans into voting Democrat as well, but in smaller numbers. Um, but um, are you sure? Uh, you know, be careful what you wish for. Are you sure a, a politician who can get people to switch sides so radically is a good thing? I just don't believe in the sides anymore. I just don't like Donald Trump. One of the things that was fascinating about him is that he went against the Republican Party when it came to trade. So when you look at the three states that really determined this election up in Michigan and Pennsylvania, those states are those are states that were hurt the most by our international trade agreements. Mm -hmm. Those are the people that were manufacturers and they lost their jobs and they want their jobs to come back. They want their not their jobs. They want their incomes to come back. Mm -hmm. And people were voting on that. So here you had this Republican candidate and Republicans have been pushing these free trade deals for a very long time. You had him saying he was against these trade deals. Well, Hillary Clinton, she said she was against it, but she negotiated the the TPP. So it was an interesting flop, not when it came to the party politics, but it was like these people were voting on policy. And that actually gives me hope that people that were firmly Democrat were able to look at a different candidate and be like, well, this is a policy that I support, so I'm going to pick this guy instead. I think that we... Are you, we are, you sure that, are you sure they'll get what they wished for? No, of course not, but we had two bad options. That's, that's you know? a good point. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, so it's like, I don't really hold this election, whoever you voted for, I mean, you had your reasons, and that's the thing. When I talk to Trump voters... Not a single one of them has said, I voted for Trump because I'm a racist. You know, they voted for Trump because I've heard um, health care. I think that's a misguided um, reason, but it's a reason. Also, the, the manufacturing things that he said. I've also heard I voted for Trump because I was just tired of the same old thing. I didn't trust Hillary. She's establishment and Trump was different. And yeah, so but I've hold, heard, hold on, hold on, Jennifer. I've heard a load of people say, I'm not a racist, but... And well, give a reason why they, why, why they voted for, for, for I, I understand, but and and for sure, it's absolutely not true to say that everyone who voted for Trump was a racist. But I think yeah. it's fair to say that pretty much all of the racists voted for Trump. See, that's such a generalization. I have absolutely no idea if that's true or false. I have no way. Like, I don't What's know. Your I'm. I'm I don't know a lot of racists. I honestly can't speak for the racists. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but what I do know is that most people that I've talked to, whoever they voted for, they did it holding their nose. So, yeah. and there yeah, were obviously there were a lot of women who were super excited about Hillary, not looking at her record whatsoever. And there were Republicans who were, will vote for anyone who's a Republican. That exists. But I think that that is vastly outnumbered by the people that are just like, I want a government that functions on behalf of me. And those are the conversations that I've had, no matter who I've talked to, with the exception of a few, but the people that I've talked to who were voting on policy, um, they vastly outweigh the number of people that I've talked to that have voted based on teams. I think that we are, we are, we're not giving the American voter enough credit. I think we are smarter than we are being told we are. And, um, and then there's a gigantic group of people in the middle that just don't know what to do anymore. And that's my hope lies in them because if they show up, they, they change the whole game. If they showed up this time, we could have a different president than Trump or Hillary, but they just didn't know what to do. And part of that is the fact that we weren't told all of our options. 
You know, we had four people that were on over 89% of the ballots in the United States. They could all mathematically win the presidency, but two of them were not allowed on the debate stage because Mm -hmm. the debate participants are picked by Republicans and Democrats. So we also have this two-party stranglehold where in a lot of things, these two parties work together. You know, um, before we went on air, we talked about campaign finance a little bit. Both parties are in the business of collecting as much money as they possibly can and changing the rules in Congress so they can collect more and more and more every year. So there's a lot of things in which the the party establishments agree on. Um, One of those things is keeping other candidates off that stage. So uh, I think a lot of the problems we have are the two of those parties, these two main parties, making sure that one of them is in power forever. And there's a lot of us that are done with that. Jennifer Briney, the presenter of Congressional Dish, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you so much for having me. If you like the Challenging Opinions podcast, please rate and review the show on iTunes and other podcast providers. Share it on Facebook and Twitter. Tell your friends. But most important, make your view heard. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com. In the interview there, I said that Hillary Clinton got the most votes of any candidate for the presidency. I wasn't quite right. Barack Obama got more votes than her, twice. But apart from him, she got more votes than any other candidate for presidency in history, winning or losing. The turnout in the election last November was 55%. That was a couple of points lower than in Obama's elections. That's all for the Changing Opinions podcast, published on April 17, 2017. I have links in the show notes to Jennifer's podcast. And do you know someone else who I should interview? What topics should I be covering? I'd be really interested to hear your feedback. If you like the podcast, there's one thing that you could do that would really help other people to find it. Go to iTunes, give the podcast a rating, and write in a short review. There's a link on the website directly to the iTunes page. Also, please like the show on Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow the show at ChallengingO. You can also follow Jennifer Briney at Jen Briney. And most importantly, subscribe to the show. It's free. You can use iTunes if you're on an Apple product or Google Play Music if you're on Android. And there's links for both of those. And there's the RSS feed if you use that. You can find it all and get in touch with me at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming on Wednesday, that's April 19th, I'll have an interview with the journalist Virginia Postrel about giving away a kidney. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. Mm